0: There's a, I'm having a goddamn elk joke with this weather outside. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon.
1: Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A
0: screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is
2: nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. I saw Thomas Gravity's Rainbow and other inquiries directly related to the text. to the now yeah. To the Now Here's the mystery of Thomas French
0: Slow Learners Episode 7 Covering Gravity's Rainbow Section
2: 3 Chapters 6 through 12 Keep an eye out for a light bulb flickering
1: sinisterly overhead
0: so we pick up again in the zone with who else but tyrone slothrop wakes up in a basement somewhere in berlin he flashes back to a conversation with einstein and realizes that he and the Herrero are both searching for clues about the zero, zero 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 And indeed, the Herrero are looking for any sort of loose scraps and detritus from the rocket. I also think, and I could be wrong, but let's say that I'm right. This is the first confirmation that the 00000 rocket has already been fired. But the firing itself won't figure into the novel until a little later. Anyway, Slothrop links up with a crew of German black market bootleggers and drug dealers, led by Emil Sauerbummer. Sauer is the German word for acid, meaning his name is a- acid bummer, mm-hmm. like a bad trip, maybe. We'll talk about acid and chemistry stuff later in this episode. The crew have liberated Wagnerian opera costumes, which Slothrop restyles into a new uniform for himself, adopting the superheroish persona Rocketman. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of. Elton John. I was going to say Kim Jong Un. Uh-huh. <laughs> Elton Jun. <laughs> Elton Kim Jong Un. Little Rocketman. The American naval seaman Pig Bodine, another holdover from Pynchon's first novel V, pops up, and he'll pop up a few more times in the book. Bummer, Bodine and Slothrop hatch this scheme to liberate a cache. Because I said scheme? Yeah. Okay. Scheme. <laughs> I, mean, to...
2: I, I think you should stick to your guns
0: on it. I oh, say okay. scheme. <laughs> <laughs> so they hatch <laughs> They hatch a Scheme to liberate a cache, or cachet of hash, or hashé, from nearby Potsdam, where the so-called Big Three, that is, Churchill, Truman, and Stalin, are negotiating the terms for the end of the war. So this would date the action of this section to July, or very early August of 1945. Slinking around, he encounters Hollywood actor Mickey Rooney, who was also there for some reason. Slothrop's about to escape scot-free with the hash when he's captured by Russian sentries and injected with a familiar sting, which we presume at this point is another sodium ametal needle, fade to black. Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> now we meet a few new characters and catch up with some familiar favorites. <laughs> The Argentine anarchist how do you say this, Azure? Francesco Squaliodosi? Squaladozi? Is it squaliodosi? Squaladozi, yeah, I
2: think. Squaladozi, squaladazzi. He's probably of Italian descent. He's
0: I have a thing, whenever it. there's like two vowels, I just think you could go forever. Yeah, Squalialidozzi. Sure. <laughs> anarchist, squalodazzi. Uh, anyway, squalidazzi. ...popped up at the end of Part 2, in case you don't remember. He's aboard a hijacked U-boat. He's teamed up with Gerhard von Gohl, also known as Der Springer, a black marketer and filmmaker... ...who was responsible for the Schwartz Commando fake propaganda films way, way back in Part 1. Squalidotzi is en route to Von Gohl, as the two are collaborating on a film adaptation of the Argentine epic poem Martin Fierro. En route, they run afoul of Seaman Bodine's boat, the John E. Badass. Bodine's crew is tripping on Onarine which is another Laszlo J.F. concoction that has time-modulating properties. Back in Berlin with Chicharine and his partner, I don't know how to say this, Jabajev? Jabajev? Jabajev. Let's say Jabajev. So Chicharine's chilling with Jabajev. They're reviewing Slothrop's transcript from his latest sodium anatol sessions. Black, the Russian notes, runs all the way through it. Chicharine is mostly confused by Slothrop. Who is he working for? What does he want? There's a great reflection on the nature of freedom and whether or not Slothrop is actually undertaking his own quest or is being pushed around by unseen forces. This is a recurring theme of the book. Also, to get just a bit annoying and meta for one second, obviously, as a character in a book, none of Slothrop's moves and motivations are truly free, at Mm. least not yet. So annoying. Is that annoying? No. I wonder, cause are books like that, like Kilgore Trout and Kurt Vonnegut, where uh-huh. he like knows that he's in a book? Yeah, I mean, he never defies. Can't, Kurt Vonnegut. yeah. yeah. But Slothrop, eh, let's see what happens to him. <laughs> he might just surprise a few of you in the audience. So Slothrop comes to, and then he fades out again. He's dreaming of these Rockwellian winters in Massachusetts when he was growing up. Then he wakes up for good, and he wanders onto a film set where he meets the fading German movie star, Margareta Greta Erdmann, who, we are told a little earlier, he was fated to meet. She's searching for her missing daughter, Bianca, on the set of her film Alpdrücken, which is a Gerhard von Gaal, what does that translate to? Does that mean anything? An Alpdrucken is like a nightmare. Oh. Uh, You're a smart guy, John. Let me double check that. Alpdrucken mm-hmm. is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Alpdrucken, I guess, would be nightmares, plural. It comes from the term Alp, meaning elf, <laughs> and Druk, which means like pressure, because Germans used to think, like, you know when you have night terrors and people say that there's like a creature sitting yeah, yeah, on you? Yeah. Or in English, it's called a nightmare because people would think that a horse was sitting on them. Uh, Elbdruck is comes from the fact that people thought that there would be, there's an elf sitting on their chest. On the set of Elpdrucken, Slothrop and Erdmann reenact an s scene from the film itself, another case of fantasy and reality blurring, as in von Gaal's Schwarzkommando serials. Now, Chapter 11 is a long and heartbreakingly moving story about the German rocket engineer Franz Pokler, who was introduced earlier, and his own relationship with an estranged daughter, Working for Weissman, a.k.a. Blasero, at the Penamunde Rocket Manufacturing Base, Pokler is occasionally furloughed to a theme park called Zwölfkinder, which is entirely operated by children. In this halfway, feral never-never land, Pokler engages in routinized romantic and sexual trysts with a girl who is either his daughter or a convincing double. This is all arranged by Blasero. He presumes paranoid. Who is Weissman, just a reminder. Yes. In case you forgot. We learn how Blacero has been able to exploit both Pokler's own scientific curiosity in the rocket and his own deep emotional wounds. Suffice to say that Blacero is not a very nice guy. (laughs) Uh, Back in Berlin, Slothrop and Greta Erdmann are hunkering down in a little shack on the Spree. Slothrop begins weighing his own motivations and paranoia and now anti-paranoia, which is a troubling sense that nothing is connected. And if you're reading the book by this point, you may have that fear yourself. Yes. That this is just a bunch of bullshit and none of it's connected to anything. I mean. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Could be. It's Could it just be breadcrumbs? No trail? We don't know yet. Uh, Slothrop returns the hash to Sour Bummer and finds a plastic chess piece, like the, the knight piece. Uh, this is Der Springer's calling card. It comes with a map, and just as he was losing faith, Slothrop's quest and his general feeling of purposefulness is renewed. There's a weird bit here where Bummer's lieutenants are arguing about the merits of Beethoven versus Rossini, followed by a weirder bit where Slothrop seems to get an erection in his nose. He returns to Erdmann, who was so distressed that he was gone, and they resume their kinky S&M sex. What the hell else would anyone do in this book? (laughs) Um,
2: yeah, let's get into it. So, John, there's that part where Slothrop dons a Wagnerian opera costume and sort of becomes Rocketman, and we'll find out that people start referring to him as Rocketman who weren't even present for that sort of conversation that Slothrop has with Sour and the two girls who are smoking weed. I'm wondering if you think that him donning this opera garb has any sort of symbolic meaning is he shifting is he changing is he losing him his former self or
0: i i think that that is definitely being set up and i think that we've seen slothrop adopt costumes and different identities already i mean he does the thing where he goes to switzerland in the zoot suit uh and becomes ian scuffing the british war reporter that's right yeah and here he becomes like rocket man who's kind of framed as being this comic book superhero Rakatenmensch, Mensch, I believe, is his mm. German name, and uh, as you say, like Volk, it's kind of Volkish in the sense that around Berlin they start seeing graffiti about Rocket Man, as if he's kind of this popular character. Well, it's
2: Pynchon even says like the newest. Well, I forget if it's Pynchon or a character, but they say the newest zone celebrity. Yeah, as ex- if there have been previous Zone celebrities I mean, Yes, in, like, three weeks or something.
0: <laughs> but I, I think that, like, he's doing this thing where Slothrop's identity feels very malleable. And this will tie into something we'll get into a bit, which is, like, the nature of Slothrop's freedom mm-hmm. uh, and if it really exists. And I'm kind of, like, playing the cards close to the vest because, you know, Slothrop kind of becoming unstable as a person and as a character – uh, figures way more into the book a bit later, but sure. certainly we should be like the reader should be cued into all these things where like, he's almost literally adopting new identities. And there's one coming up in this section that is like very creepy. Um, so yeah, I do think that there, he's trying to do this thing. Like there's also like the plastic man stuff in mm-hmm. part two, yeah. uh, where, yeah, we, we've talked so much about slaughter being a bit of a cipher, but it's this idea that he like so easily can cop these other identities. Yeah. um,
2: this is just a very quick aside pig semen boating. Yeah. I was sort of I feel like his backstory is very vague to me and I don't really understand so who like is he intelligence? Is he military? I mean he's driving a U-boat. Yeah, at no. At some point, but he, he also says it's sours contact.
0: He he's a he is like a naval seaman. Mm-hmm. Uh he's a character in uh V as well and the Bodine family I think shows up in Mason and Dixon yeah. just like
2: and I believe some short stories or one short story at least
0: yeah just like how the the Cherry Cokes like Roland and Ronald Cherry Coke (laughs) reappear Uh, so yeah he is like um, a archetypal Pinchonian character not only because he's called Pig and Pinchon like has a thing where he loves pigs as we learned a bit with the William Slothrop thing Mm -hmm. or of course the uh, famous, rumored... Is it a rumored? Wasn't there a photo of Pinch on Captured where he was wearing a Porky the Pig hat? <laughs> uh, or that... Picture we talked. I talked about this in the Alex Ross Perry episode, but where he's, like, holding a pig piñata. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bodine is just kind of this, like, gregarious slob who, for lack of a better word, is a good guy in mm-hmm. the Pynchon universe. Like, he's a hustler and a scammer, and he mm-hmm. works all angles. But he's not especially villainous, even gotcha. if he kind of, like, lives outside the law.
2: And is it him who gives Slothroth the mission to go to Potsdam? Yeah, the, he
0: hatches it together with Sour Bummer, mm-hmm. who's a similar character, Emil... Zawabuma because they've buried this hash there. I think Bodine buried it there Mm -hmm. uh, and they have to go recover it. But of course the thing that's happening there at the time is literally the Potsdam Conference. Yep. It's a pot conference. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> oh. really. No, really. Potsdam pot, pot mission. Wow. I should always look for puns because I feel like they are meaningful. This is like one of the only authors that
2: I mean it's I think it's meaningful in the sense that I could literally see Pension being like Potsdam pot. Stamp, pot. Yeah. I have an idea. Yeah.
0: yeah. Is are there other like high masters of, of arts and letters <laughs> who aren't above puns <laughs> I'm sure there are but yeah they don't come to mind I don't know maybe
2: like Nabokov has some pun I think his character names are punny p- yeah f- silly
0: and punny at least I don't know why I think-, I think when you're a hack like me it's like puns are worse than dirt but it's like anything it's like how all the monty python guys have to go to like oxford it's like once you prove that you're really smart it gives you license to be stupid as fuck
2: yeah Bit silly all right so we led right into the potsdam conference i think this is interesting in multiple ways one being sort of springing off a previous conversation we had which is that you know a lot of the events of this book take place on the fringes of history and you wouldn't know that it's on the same day as the Battle of the Bulge or this or that. And right. yet, here Pynchon gives us an explicit plot entanglement with the Potsdam Conference, which, for those who don't know, was the pe- essentially the peace talks between the three victory- victorious powers. Right. Russia, England, and the United States. So, do you have any thoughts on why Potsdam is... Included or
0: well, like you say, I think that there's this kind of like way to maybe productively think of Gravity's Rainbow and pinch on a general where it's almost these like the word alternate history conjures such boring ideas where it's like, what if the South won the Civil War? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Who's that author? Henry Turtledove, who has like a billion books about that. Mm -hmm. So it's not like an alternate history or like a U-Crony in that sense, but he's giving this sort of like alternate map of real history. I mean, it's a fictionalized map, of course, but I think that the idea here, it encapsulates a lot of what's going on in the book in a way that's really easy to understand and really electric, which is that, okay, you have like three of the most powerful men on planet Earth in one room carving up the future of the free world, Mm -hmm. but then... Just outside of that, you have this idiot with a opera helmet with the wings snapped off, wearing a cape, pretending to be a superhero who's like on his hands and knees digging up a pile of hash and who is himself a historical actor enmeshed in world events in a way that like, you know, it's stupid to say that we don't understand it because it's not real, but – Surely you understand the point, right? Which is that there is this kind of history, this kind of like subaltern history that exists just outside of the official narrative. And in this case, it is like literally happening just outside of the official narrative. Very good.
2: Something I think we should note from this section, not necessarily discuss, is that we're told that Slothrop begins to think of himself as invisible. Yes. Um, that's just something maybe the listener should keep in mind yes
0: and almost like literally uh again to tie into that sort of shifting identity stuff with slothrop yep it's so hard to not spoil what happens with old slothrop but i figure if we
2: have already
0: have we i feel like we've mentioned that he
2: maybe goes
0: is this book spoilable though um i feel like anything you could say about it will only end up helping people at the end
2: i think it's it it, i think framing it as a spoiler would be dishonest because it's not like when you get to certain things and they happen you're like oh my god everything has been leading to this this like perfect little lattice work of events and causal things it's not like a plot book like that yes things that happen are sort of chaotic so i don't think it would be a spoiler in the sense that it would ruin the reading experience of someone that they would know something is coming but I do think it's probably best to not say
0: well yes, yeah. okay um, and if we do say them you're going to end up forgetting them anyways because there's yeah. so much shit happening i uh, that the I hell
2: is sour bummer yeah uh, I don't know
0: um, but you said and raised an interesting point which is something else I want to talk about which is like this tension between the lattice work and pure chaos yeah uh, and This sort of takes shape in that conversation about uh, the different types of paranoia Mm -hmm. and how Slothrop is beginning to be seized by a new type of paranoia, which he calls Mm anti-paranoia, which is this debilitating fear that nothing at all is connected. And like Pinchon has a line in there like, this is a feeling that not many people can withstand for very long. And I thought that that is an interesting way to think about this book uh, because – There's obviously so much detail happening and there's a sense that it's all going to like resolve and connect or like the architecture will appear and all the blocks Mm -hmm. will be in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, not to spoil or not spoil it, but that's not really the case. (laughs) Yeah, it's not the case for the book
2: and also inside the book. It's kind of not the case for the like... I think that's what these characters are struggling with as well and sort of what the aboutness of the book is about. It's it's demystifying paranoia and sort of pulling back the curtain to reveal that all these actors and agencies and people who were afraid have this master plan and have total control over us, total control over world events, No, I think Pynchon's mission is actually to say these are all sort of bumbling idiots with crazy ideas about right causality and metaphysics and ghosts and they're all lost
0: well and also that like a little bit of paranoia is a healthy thing mm-hmm. it reminds me of like to tie it back to this the interview we did with hamilton morris it's like in Drug toxicology, the new popular word for drug is pharmacon, which is annoying. People always try to find new words to describe things. Sounds like a COVID strain. Yeah. So like a pharmacon is a word that means both uh, like a provision, a medicine and a toxin. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that like nothing is, no compound is inherently bad, but it's the dose and the way it's used and the context in which it's used is bad. So pharmacon is seen as being a more neutral word than drug, Mm -hmm. even though, of course, drug is a totally neutral word that has become non-neutral through its negative usage over the past century and a half. Anyways, I feel like it's like that with paranoia, like especially these days in our world when we're recording this, Mm -hmm. when notions of conspiracy and stuff have become entirely run into the dirt to -hmm. the sense that like... I have con- conspiratorial thoughts about things, but it's almost embarrassing to have them because the people who have them most publicly these days are total fucking morons yeah. and have totally discredited the idea of being conspiratorial or and paranoid, man. you know? But anyway, so I th- I think when Pinchon says that, like, anti-paranoia is a, something that people can't bear for very long... I- that resonates with me. Like there's a kind of like despair and nihilism where it's like, Oh, nothing is connected at all. And everything is just contingent and randomized and chaotic. I mean, that's how I feel
2: about the, it, I connects with me because it's like that moment, not to drop an Oppenheimer reference, although it's not to drop a Bhagavad Gita reference, but that moment when. Bhagavad Gita, Mr. Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, not Constantinople. (laughs) Um, when the protagonist of the Bhagavad Gita sees the deity for his, in his true form. Yes, many-faced, many-mouthed, many-armed. Yeah, it's this complete, chaotic, jumbled thing, and that's, that's real reality, and the average human can't deal with looking at that. Yes. Also,
0: this is an aside, but we're recording this shortly after Oppenheimer and Barbie came out, mm-hmm. and to me, that's like a, a a Pinchonian double bill. The splitting of the atom and the atom bomb was this like revolution in physics, the creation of like plastics and the aestheticization of plastics and synthesis which is something we talked about about E.G. Farben an episode or two back. Mm -hmm. These things not only happening in relatively close proximity in history but things that are so emblematic of those shifts becoming huge movies at the Mm -hmm. same month in the box office that is like uh, pinch on stuff in my mind. Yeah. Uh, So there's my own little healthy paranoia. The high and the low. Yes. And that there are connections if you want to find them. Sure. Well, actually, this quote that
2: Chicharine gives in the next section sort of is poignant to this, Mm -hmm. talking about anti-paranoia and how no human can stand it for that long. Chicharine says of Slothrop in um, the next chapter, quote, "'He's more useful running around the zone thinking he's free, but he'd be better off locked up somewhere. He doesn't even know what his freedom is, much less what it's worth.'" um just that idea that you know he'd be better up god damn it better off <laughs> he'd be better off locked up than free sort of a dostoevsky and grand inquisitor idea there from a Russian.
0: Yeah. Or it reminds me of, too, the scene in part two, when we're at the white visitation and the janitor, Webley Silvernail is like leading the lab mice in that little dance, uh, and talking about the nature of freedom, which is very perceptive about, mm-hmm. uh, where yeah there's that idea this reminds I was literally reading this earlier today but there's a big long essay about Succession in the New York Review of Books and I wish finally. I had I know finally someone wrote an article about the TV show <laughs> Succession uh, but they published all the scripts so that means you could write about the uh, New York Review of Books but the author I wish I could remember who it is says that uh, the characters mistake the desire for freedom with freedom itself mm-hmm. uh, and that struck me as something that is true of what Chicharine is saying about sloth with it. Like people actually don't know what it is to be free. Yeah. Like if someone were to say to you, what would your freedom look like? What would your answer be?
2: I don't, I think, I think for most people in our society, it means having money. Yeah. Li- having liberation
0: from like the demands of yeah, work capitalism. essentially. Yeah. But is that freedom? I mean, I, I think that economic freedom can enable a form of freedom. No, it's not freedom. Freedom is the freedom to be an absurdist clown. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think that like, that is P- Pigeon's point, right? Yeah, like, yeah. even if you're if you're uh, calculating your freedom as negative freedom, which is a removal from want or need, that want or need is being defined externally by whatever system you're in. Yeah. Uh, so this idea that like Slothrop is kind of just like bouncing around like a pinball, like what's the other line where people say someone's is it Chicharín says all people know about you is that you keep showing up. Mm. Uh I love that as, like, a description of that character.
1: Yeah. But this
0: idea that, like, he thinks he's free, he thinks he's kind of, like, following his instincts or running into these different groups and getting these little missions and that he's part of this grander design. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, he doesn't actually know what freedom would be. And I don't think Chicharine does either, and yeah. I don't think anyone in this book does. To be honest, the person closest to it mm-hmm. would be, like, Blacero. Mm-hmm. Like, someone who has all the Who wits no ethic and really. means and yeah and no ethics and the true desire to like manifest their madman fantasies yeah but uh, without underlining it i don't think that that's a very admirable character to aspire to either yeah we're we're getting lost here let's, sorry let's rein ourselves listener if in. you know how to be free please write in and tell <laughs> us uh, what to do uh yeah. i want to be what's that song closer to free i don't know everybody wants to live It's a party of five feet. Just Uh, a little bit. You're dating yourself here. Everybody. Who is that? a little before my time. Was that the Bodines? No. Hold Hold on on now. Closer to free. The (laughs) Bodines. Like Pig Bodine, but spelled differently. There you go. Um, Okay, so freedom, we've solved that. What next? Next. Um,
2: I think we don't have much to say about the movie set. I mean, we could be like, Hey, movies, they're important.
0: Yeah. And it's something we talked about with Alex Ross Perry, but there's a, uh, there's a way in which uh, I feel this book is responding to an anxiety about film, becoming the predominant cultural or pop cultural mode at the time. Mm-hmm. People talk about the pay or the section or chapter breaks or whatever looking like film reels. I feel like that has been debunked somewhere. Who knows? But there is in this sense, uh, a way in which pinchon is building the book like a film. Like we, go from uh, the s and scene in the movie to mm-hmm. cut to uh, Slothrop and Erdman reenacting that scene. It's this kind and of then cut, to cut to Franz Pokler reminiscing, reminiscing about watching the movie which connects to his own daughter. So there's this form of almost like lateral associative mm-hmm. editing in the book yeah. or writing but it's being written as if it has like even mm-hmm. when I'm writing the summary I'm like fade to black cut to you know yeah. like it has A that real Wendeloff move. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah I do think it has that quality and obviously like film and cinema Uh, as a concern plays into this book. I mean, when we get to the climax, we'll kind of get more of that. Yeah, and it also
2: seems like Gerhard von Gaal actually thinks that if he helps Squaladozzi make Martin Fierro, then the Argentine anarchists could take control of Argentina.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has reason to think that because he made the Schwarzkommando films and now the Schwarzkommando are real. So, like, the way in which the reality of the film strip and the reality of the reality of this book are blurred is a consistent thing. And I mean, I also think that like Pinchon's just like a film nut and sure. he loves kind of like peppering yeah. references in. Yeah.
2: He's a real Netflix and chill
0: kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Netflix
2: and don't describe what I look like to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I mentioned Franz pochler I think we should zoom out and slow down just a bit because this section is perhaps the most straightforward and cogent section we've gotten. I mean, Pynchon a lot in this book does backstory moves, but they're yeah. usually in this fleeting POV shift way, will flash into someone's backstory. This is 30 to 40 pages dedicated in a linear fashion to explaining the backstory of Franz Pokler, who we've only ever seen really in connection with his wife. Um, I mean, we go into his consciousness a couple times before this, but... Lenny is more important earlier in this book. Now we go to Franz, and Franz suddenly seems like the center of the novel, at least to me, briefly. Um, And we trace his arc um, at Pinamunda and then Nordhausen in the building of the Rockets. Uh, Do you want to just give us a quick... Well, maybe we should just say what's going on here um, in a plot way, which is that Weissmann uh, is exploiting Pokler who is working on the Rocket Project at Pinamunda, and he's exploiting him by holding his daughter hostage. For what reason? To make him work better? I don't understand.
0: Like, yeah, I, th- I think it's like to control him and to make sure that he has true believers working for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sends him on these kind of holidays at Zwolfkinder. You have a good little etymology thing or something yeah we're like i see zwolf kinder i mean there's like the thing where it would mean 12 children so it could be like the 12 sons of jacob but also like zwolf relating to like feral wolf children basically
2: there's also an explicit mention that they that the theme park is ruled by a council of 12 children
0: yes exactly and uh It's like everything is – like they have a child mayor. They Mm -hmm. have – it's like a whole society where childlike innocence is maintained on a permanent basis, like kind of like Never Never Land or Disney World or something Mm -hmm. like that. But of course in this totally like putrescent way where – you know, this fantasy of innocence is has, like, a perimeter around it, and they can't leave, and they're forced to live like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see versions of Zwölfkinder that will abound throughout the Zone, mm-hmm. because we learn more about these kind of, like, contingent communities where people end up, like, creating these little societies. Yeah. But the fact that Pokler uh, is there to sort of, like, reflect on childlike innocence mm-hmm. is almost a way of, like, torturing him about the absence of his daughter. Because yeah. we should say that his wife, Lenny, is Jewish, so was presumably mm-hmm. to Into a concentration camp and his daughter would be half Jewish and Mm -hmm. therefore the same thing would be liable to happen. So this idea that not only is she not in a concentration camp but she comes there and stays with him and they do this kind of like daddy-daughter sex thing. Although again, I'm, John
2: thinks it was a fantasy. I think maybe...
1: I don't think year.
0: it's a fantasy. I think that the 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 woman is like a doppelganger. Or right, like well, looks, looks enough like their... Woman. A, woman. <laughs> well, she ages into a woman. Because yeah, yeah. he goes every year for like yes. a number of years. Um, Pokler is paranoid that
2: Weissman is playing tricks on him by substituting a doppelganger of his daughter in for these prearranged summer visits to a child run... Yes. Theme park. Theme park.
0: Uh, and... Yeah, I mean and I'm not just saying that cuz I'm squeamish and it's like there there's would... a moment,
2: sorry, when Pokler has sex or maybe fantasizes about having sex with his daughter. 14 year oldish, 12 to 14 year oldish daughter. Yeah. Um, and
0: which we do not condone?
2: No. And, but, you know, there's also a, a, a layer of remove, which is that the reader thinks that possibly Pokler is being too paranoid and hallucinating the idea that this is a doppelganger. And no, yes, it's really his daughter, and he's not being as loving or kind to her as he could because he's paranoid about the mind games. Weissman might be playing with him.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, like, this, the section shows that this is one of those long chapters in the book that could almost read like a novella or short... Well, maybe not a novella, but a short story. Long, short story. Uh, yeah. Where... I think it explores the way in which the uh, emotional and the sexual and the professional and this uh, like this way that desire itself becomes kind of like incohate and in the way that people are desirous of things where they don't really know what they want, they're very able to be easily controlled mm-hmm. by people like Blacero. Mm-hmm. And also just thinking back to Pochler's sort of arc... He was sort of a loser
2: before he became a rocket scientist. And exactly. I think that's also exploitable as well. Like yeah. This is his one shot to be someone or something.
0: Exactly. And the thing that's interesting about that is that, uh, you know, when we talk about Nazism now, especially with hindsight, obviously, we only think of like the – Disgusting, exploitative aspects of it, it's very rare that you get an image or a character like this where it's like you are a kind of like uh, wimpish neb in society and suddenly a system comes around and says, hey, you can be the man. Yeah. And you can understand the attraction of someone like that mm-hmm. to that sort of... My- I mean, you see yeah. it now with fucking... Sort of the... The Bored Ape Club of the <laughs> yeah. of World War II. The, the Nazis were the original Bored Ape Club. <laughs> <laughs> and you could get like a swastika with sunglasses <laughs> or a swastika smoking a cigar. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this section, like, again, I just want to like underline, God, it's impossible to do it a proper service. But I, I do think that there's this criticism of Pinchon where like all he deals in is like ideas or broad mm-hmm. jokes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there's such an emotional salience in this book. Like it's also the first time that a character directly confronts a concentration camp yeah. or any eyewitness evidence of the Holocaust. Yep. And it's like totally devastating to Pokler. Like he starts like puking all over the place.
2: Yeah, and he slips his wedding band onto a dying woman and it's very tender. Yeah. And beautiful. And there's
0: there's obviously the exchange that he believes Lenny is in such a camp and he's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, giving his wedding band to this yeah. other person in hopes that she could like
2: by herself I mean, even a meal. if she weren't Jewish, she was a leftist and they sent those it, exactly.
0: people away to... I mean, we know yes. that Lenny made it to London at some point because true. that's where she is in the first part of the book. True,
2: true, 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 true. Um, the the Pokler's project is to build the A4.
0: So we're rewinding a bit to when the
2: A3 was the modus and they're trying to get the A4 up and running. Yeah, and
0: the A4, just to clarify, is like the German name for the V2. The yes. Aggregat 4, which the British called the Vengeance 2. Right. Um, and
2: the big innovation between the A4 and the A3 is that the A4 is more precisely guided through yeah. some complex set. gyroscopics. Gyroscopics, yeah. yes. Um, you know, and I think that this emphasis from propulsion to guidance, in a way, is what this whole book is about. Not that it's just about that, but it's yet another example of Pynchon confronting this binary shift from old world to new world, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's this idea in the book that everything that's happening is taking place at this like quite literally explosive moment in human history, where as we've discussed a number of revolutions in thought and science and technology and culture and military power and global power are all kind of happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's the propulsion and the anxiety is like, well, where does this go? Mm-hmm. You know, if we can infinitely expand and acquire and build to what end are Which we, we doing can't, anyway? Yeah, no, we, yeah, we literally can't. <laughs> um, but we get pretty close. Uh, so how do we guide that and who guides it and what is the thing guiding it? I mean, the analogy that I always use for the book, like the rocket analogy, is when they talk about uh, the Brennschluss point, which is when the rocket sort of exhausts its fuel and is just – carried along by the loft of gravity the gravity's rainbow as it were Ooh. i guess it's not really my analogy if it's the title of the book <laughs> uh but i think that Pinchon kind of sees the world as being in that point where it's like we are just kind of in this free fall or free fall where everything has kind of been built has reached a kind of apotheosis yeah. and is in this state of rapid decline and I think that the point between the second world war and the point where he's writing the book like 20 25 years later is that right yeah um that's kind of like the branch loose point for civilization yeah. and i think, I think now right. yeah i mean certainly where we sit right now that feels like the case to me like all these wonderful greatest generation things that happened for america specifically yeah. after the second world war all those things and all those systems are falling apart and there's nothing to replace them they're entropized yes they're entropized they're dissolving they're breaking apart the guidance systems are not working. No. Um, so yeah, the, the the shift between propulsion and guidance, and then the exhaustion of propulsion at loose, I think, are the kind of like key rocket ideas. It's heady stuff. Kind of. But I feel for me, it's like there's so much stuff that's so heady in this book where I'm like, uh, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, but when we think, when we talk about this stuff, yeah, I feel at least personally confident talking about it because I feel like it's actually
2: it's almost happening. like a
0: worldview. Like the gravity's
2: rainbow. It's like when you study Marx enough and you start seeing things in a historically material dialectic way. It's like you start seeing this entropy post World War Two in, in everything once you read Gravity's Rainbow and it's like it's all this new new
0: world order of entropy. So a big thing that comes up in this book is drugs. There's references to LSD. There's Ozby Field drying out mushrooms. In this section of the book, there's onarine, the drug that... Uh, distorts time. Distorts time, yeah. So we wanted to talk a bit about drugs from a psychopharmacological perspective. We talked about it from a cultural and military perspective with Stephen Kinzer. But we want to talk about drug chemistry and especially how drug chemistry was changing at the point that Gravity's Rainbow takes place and the point during which it was written. So... Our guest this week is Hamilton Morris. Hamilton is a very talented chemist and journalist who you might know from Hamilton's Pharmacopeia or Pharmacopia on Vice. uh, And also the Hamilton Morris podcast. So here's Hamilton. Okay, so we were just kind of talking about it uh, off mic a bit, but um, I had the notion to ask you to do this, not only because you know a lot about drugs and chemistry, uh, but because you told me once that your Wi Fi password was onarine, uh, which is a big tell. Uh, which network, name,
1: you... network name, network name, right. network
0: name. Okay. Um, so you know you're in Hamilton's neighborhood if you see that network.
1: Right? <laughs> now I have to change it. <laughs> it's still, it, it still is onirene theophosphate.
0: What was your experience on first reading Gravity's Rainbow?
1: complete and total awe i mean it's it is an awesome book in the strictest sense of the word i think it is a human achievement on par with the pyramids it's like <laughs> such an insane thing that you know you hear these conspiracy theories about how Pynchon. and was many people working together. It was like a collective that called themselves Thomas Pynchon. And you can kind of understand why somebody might think that, because how could one person possibly contain all of the different types of expertise required to write a book like this?
0: Can I say, I think gravity's rainbow is more impressive than the pyramids. Uh, someone uh-huh. would have thought, someone would have thought of that eventually to make big buildings shaped like a triangle but i think that like works like this the thing that makes them stick with me uh is there's no real tradition or lineage or particular sort of pattern of thought or literature that they emerge out of. I mean, obviously, there are sort of certain things it engages with. But this is one of those works, I think, that feels truly singular, uh, that is the product of a singular mind and entity. I'd actually never heard that, that Pinchon was kind of a – like Homer, I guess, a collective of individuals. Um, Maybe it's a nice idea. Yeah, But I prefer to think of that as one weird guy in a blacked out apartment and Hermosa Beach uh, or whatever.
1: Well, I mean, I think that is the reality of it, of course. But I, I understand why somebody, especially if at an early phase, if they didn't know anything about him, but not that really anyone does know all that much about him. But if you knew truly nothing about him, how could one person contain all these diverse areas of expertise and also be so funny and so irreverent and so weird. It seems impossible, the combination of traits required to create something like this.
0: We mentioned onarine or onarine theophosphate, which is one of the sort of imagined in question mark drugs in the book developed by the uh, bizarro chemist Laszlo Jampf. Uh, the effects in the novel are described, it you know produces time dilation. It's described as having a haunting effect. In your reading, is there any particular chemical basis for such a drug?
1: Pynchon specifically does describe one. I mean, he he calls onirine a cyclized benzyl isoquinoline that contains a crippled indole ring. There are benzyl isoquinolines. These are the biosynthetic precursors for most of the morphinan opium alkaloids like morphine, but there's also a number of other ones that are more simple structurally. And um, so that, that's a real chemical class. And like so many of the chemical references, these are areas that were extremely important during World War II, where there was a tremendous interest in the chemistry of morphine and an effort to create opioid analgesics that could be synthesized without dependence on any natural source of opium. I mean, it's you, you could like. I don't even know where to. It, it, trying to, to apply synthetic chemical logic to this has the risk of falling into the trap of being like the Simpsons comic book guy. That's like, <laughs> is this some the, sort of
0: magic indole ring?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so I don't want to like go too far down that road. But at the same time, there's, of course, an enormous degree of intentionality in the text that does promote a certain Simpsons comic book guy type fixation on the details. And so could there be a drug like this? I mean, who knows? But um, I think a lot of the times he's using chemistry and, and concepts in chemistry symbolically and metaphorically. And this is probably... Most prominent in Imipolex G, which is part of this kind of larger theme in the book of polymers, mm-hmm. s- symbolic polymers of one kind or another.
0: Yeah. I mean, and th- this idea of the symbolic polymer i mean there, there's discussions there's a the discussion of a lecture by laszlo JF where he starts going off on about uh national socialist chemistry uh he talks about the sort of uh carbon bonds of the natural world being weak and pathetic and wanting to move into a synthetic future i wonder if you can kind of put that in context for me historically
1: yeah well okay so that's that's the other kind of aspect of organic chemistry that Pynchon plays with a lot in this book are the the dichotomy of the modern and the ancient that is present in all organic synthesis, where you have these new polymers and drugs that are being created from the decayed bones of an ancient world that have been pumped out of the earth. And this is maybe most famous in the Perkins synthesis of Mavian from coal tar. But coal tar was and continues to be an immensely important industrial starting material for organic synthesis. So you're you're taking this this black goo from the core of the earth and transforming it into a spectacular modern world of rockets and polymers and new types of drugs. And he, at some points, explicitly contrasts that with a, a sort of, again, using this chemical symbolism, there's one part where he's talking about a hatred of covalent bonds over ionic bonds and right. covalence as a symbol of sharing and ionic interactions as a sort of symbol of conquest and capture and division. And um, seeing the covalent bond as as bad. As yeah, he a, calls
0: it pathetic or, or uh, yeah, weak, essentially, I think.
1: But the and you can you can't make a really like a firm division here but I think what he was maybe getting at is that these covalent bonds are very much characteristic of organic synthesis whereas you see these ionic interactions more in salts and what could be considered um sort of like pre-industrial chemistry that would involve you know like metallurgy or things like that where many of these these uh, bonds are ionic in character as opposed to covalent.
0: Yeah. And I mean, of course, another one to talk about the move from the organic to the synthetic that comes up. Um, I believe Pynchon refers to it as, Dr. Hoffman's terrific discovery or something like that. Uh, but the way that LSD is made of a sort of, I guess, synthetic form of ergotamine, that it's not like the kind of, uh, you know, ancient Greek ergot stews or something like that, but rather a totally synthesized version that is made without recourse to an actual plant fungus. But it, is there a sense like the, when the book talks about rocketry and there's the madman Captain Blicero, uh, the idea of like the V2 almost being an affront to physics. Um, was there a sense in the world of chemistry at the time that synthesis constituted a same kind of affront? That it was a bucking of the natural law. And was there a kind of moralizing or hand-wringing element to that bucking?
1: Well, there certainly is now. Um if anything, I think, and I, I could be historically wrong about this, but it is my general impression that synthetic materials. Were embraced at the time of their introduction, and you know my uh, my grandmother was from Wisconsin, and my mother was from Wisconsin, and she lived in a small town, and there were uh, consignment shops that I would go to as a child, and I'd go through you know weird things that dairy farmers had left at the consignment shop, and I would go through these 1950s ads, and it always struck me that something being made of plastic was a selling point. Mm -hmm. Now, that would be something that would be indicative of low quality. But at that time, it was like, check out this new bread box, and it's made of plastic. (laughs) Like, Isn't that amazing? And there was no reason to dislike many of those products at the time of their introduction. I mean, Better Living Through Chemistry, which is now used... um, almost exclusively in an ironic manner when people describe it, was a genuine aspirational concept that people embraced. So I think that, um, if anything, the idea was that this is going to make our lives better and this is going to make everything better. We're going to have better drugs. We're going to have better polymers, better plastics, better rockets, better everything,
0: A key one too, especially in the Second World War was rubber because the US supply to rubber was cut off because Japan controlled most of it. So uh, American scientists created a way of synthesizing rubber, which was not only used in the war effort, but subsequently became a huge part of a kind of post-war baby boom GDP. I mean, you're totally right. Like I can conjure those kind of uh, 1950s ads in the same style of like, you know, four to five doctors recommend Winston's and stuff like that. Uh, But what, what do you think kind of shifted culture? where it's like for for some reason plasticity or, or synthesis or the stuff became unnatural or inorganic in a way that almost had like a value connotation
1: i think probably a decent bit of it could be traced to the 1962 publication of silent spring and you know that book is often credited with starting the 20th century environmental movement And that book is the prototypical synthetic chemicals are bad book.
0: Right. And for people who are listening who might not know, that's a book about uh, DDT basically and how DDT basically got into everything and is going to make people very sick, right?
1: Yes. And this was, I think for many Americans, the first major exposure they might have had to the idea... That these miraculous new products of modern science could be extremely fucking dangerous. And on top of that, the people selling them might be lying to you. They might be covering up the true nature of these products due to profit incentives. And it's important to recognize that the fact that globally we were seduced by the power of these chemicals is totally unsurprising because they worked really well, especially at the beginning before there was any DDT resistance. I mean, these were miracle chemicals.
0: Now, I want to ask, because you've talked before about the idea of chemophobia, about this kind of like aversion to chemicals that people have. Do you think that Pinchon in the book is almost guilty of committing to a, a kind of soft form of chemophobia? Again, the people who are obsessed with synthesis and all this in the book are generally speaking the bad guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly doesn't seem to always object to the fruits of chemistry. I mean, there's a a lot of very positive description of synthetic drugs distributed throughout the book. So I don't think that it's a a chemophobic text, but I think that it is um, a sort of a carefully considered dramatization of the seduction of chemistry and how it changed the world.
0: Right. Um, Now, you pointed me to a a review of P.K.E.L., which was authored pseudonymously, I assume, by someone named Tyrone Slothrop. And it's kind of full of all these references to Gravity's Rainbow. I have it in front of me right here, actually. Um, But I'm going to link to it in the show notes. But I wanted to ask you, uh, can you just kind of give uh, myself and uh, the presumed listener who might be tuning in uh, an overview of what PCAL is? uh, And do you have any sort of, I guess, speculation on on why Pinchon and Gravity's Rainbow have endeared themselves to the Psychonaut community in this way?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um you know when I first read the the Tyrone Slothrop review of Peacall, and this is the pseudonym chosen by a by a scientist friend of Shulgin's who I know, but I don't think he wants to be identified at the moment. And I was kind of amazed because I thought who would have been equally obsessed with these two books that have been, for me, a subject of endless obsession. But it kind of makes sense because Shulgin is actually sort of has some of these same characteristics in this poetic analysis of the power of chemistry. And, you know, there's one section I'm trying to remember
0: Hold on, just real quick t- to interject for a second. So Shulgin yeah. is Alexander Shulgin who wrote this book, P. with his wife Anne, and it's essentially uh, a mix of of memoir of their exploits with a range of uh, psychedelic compounds as well as, for lack of a better word, uh, a, a recipe guide or a cookbook on how to synthesize those compounds. Is that a fair pricey for uh, for Cal?
1: Absolutely, yes. And what's really unusual about the book is Shulgin... Wasn't like most scientists where he had a sort of defined mission in mind. I'm going to discover a new antibiotic to treat E. coli infections or something like that. He was almost purely exploratory in his research. And so everything that he synthesized seemed to contain some kind of metaphorical lesson about psychopharmacology scientific method and the possibilities of chemistry. And so he would sometimes poetically analyze these things that he had discovered synthetically. And there's one passage I wish I could remember exactly. I could maybe take a minute and look it up, but basically the passage he's he's saying, you know, if you um, have a, a phenethylamine and you lengthen the, Alpha carbon with a methyl group, then you get an amphetamine and it becomes stronger. But what if it were two carbons? Then would it become stronger again, or three carbons, and then stronger again? And could you continue this pattern into infinity? Or could you create a drug so potent that merely drawing the diagram makes you high? You know, like these are actually ideas that um sort of are are very similar to the concepts that Pynchon and William S. Burroughs, for that matter, um, and David Foster Wallace, all seemed to delight in in their writing. And um, what was really interesting about Shulgin is that for him, it wasn't some kind of postmodern maximalist literary experiment. This was a genuine inquiry that he was making. And he really was discovering extraordinary things somewhat routinely in his research finding that there were compounds that distorted the way touch is perceived or sound is perceived or the way that we process memories or perceive time and especially during that period um it seemed like the possibilities were limitless.
0: One of the other kind of bigger themes of the book is this idea of corporate capture. the you know, reification in a pure sense of the word, the idea that any sort of uh, liberated individual idea will eventually get kind of swallowed up and redeployed within corporatism or capital markets. Uh and this now has become a critique in psychedelia, right? I mean, uh you you have a whole group of people who rage against this idea of psychedelic capitalism. I'm just kind of wondering how seriously you take these critiques and, you know, if it is true in a meaningful way that something as special and variegated as a psychedelic experience could ever be kind of Fully corporatized and rubber stamped and drained of its mystery.
1: I don't think so. And I don't even, you know, I find these debates just so absurd that it's hard for me to even seriously engage with them because, like, you know, I think about all the experiences that I've had with drugs that are novel or pharmaceutical or natural or whatever. And how little of a difference that makes to me, you know, like when I was in high school drinking a bottle of Robitussin, there was maybe a little bit of added absurdity that this was something that came from a Walgreens that was capable of inducing this dramatically altered state of consciousness. And that had a kind of ironic resonance that made the whole thing feel even more surreal. But I wasn't thinking about it like, um, you know, that it was like some kind of conspiracy or that it somehow reduced the sacredness of the dextromethorphan. Gravity's Rainbow is also, as far as I know, one of the first texts, if not the first text to reference recreational use of dextromethorphan, by the way. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, I actually, I even wrote a sort of facetious article years ago Talking about Robitussin conspiracy theories, um, that was like making fun of that idea that this was all uh, some kind of a plot by the manufacturers of Robitussin. But of course, it's not. And you know, if people want to have a insurance reimbursable treatment for depression, it's psilocybin, and it's really expensive, but it helps some people. It's that's fine with me, and it's not going to eliminate psilocybin. So I find this whole debate to be kind of absurd, but the intersection of industrialization and and chemistry and society is important. And this is again something that is brought up in Gravity's Rainbow, you know, these ideas of um, industrialization creating solutions to problems that are the product of industrialization. So, we invent drugs to treat the pain that we experience as a result of a world designed to make drugs. It's, uh, it's all part of these endless cycles that implicate industry and capitalism and modernity of all kinds. And it's like hard to even begin to make sense of it other than to acknowledge that it exists.
0: Right. A question I always get from people, because as I mentioned, I wrote this Gravity's Rainbow guide. So now I'll get like random emails from people who presume me to be some kind of expert. And I'll, I get a couple questions a month that are always like, A, do you think Pinchot did LSD? To which my answer is always like, well, I presume yes, just because everyone in the era did. But B, do you think there's a... I want your view on this. Is there a meaningful way in which Gravity's Rainbow specifically is trying to replicate something like a psychedelic experience uh, through its composition and through the reading of it?
1: I imagine, yes. I don't know that that was his specific intention. In some sense, I don't think it's exactly the best book for that, if only because of its extraordinary length like i think naked lunch is a better book that almost functions as a mind-altering drug because it's has a similar effect at least on my consciousness but it um, doesn't require several weeks of continuous study in order to get even a skeletal understanding of what's going on um but yeah i mean this is one of the the amazing powers of the writing is that it induces a sort of altered state.
0: Yeah, I think th- there's a way in which, even like following this line, I mean, not that I care that anyone does LSD or writes on or is trying to replicate or anything like that, but it, there's something about it where it almost like cheapens it, where it's like, this guy was whacked out on drugs and this is the effect oh, yeah. of it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's so unfair to the achievement of it. I think, I don't know. I think, cause I love the book. I want to believe that it is uh, a work of a crystalline shimmering, undiluted consciousness. And not just like a guy who's totally wrecked at a typewriter. Right.
1: I mean, whatever the case, I'm impressed by it. There's plenty. of. It's not as if taking LSD will allow a normal person to write Gravity's Rainbow. So it almost seems like a, a moot point. I would assume that Pynchon had used a wide variety of drugs. It would be hard to have such a comprehensive, especially for that time, I mean, a lot of these things that he's describing, like I said, as far as I know, this is the first reference to Um, robo-tripping. This is not some outsider that is, you know, cobbling together some kind of superficial understanding of the subject matter. It is clearly written by someone with a passionate interest in drugs. And just the sheer number of drugs that are mentioned throughout the text, many of which are extremely obscure yeah Um, well well,
0: dexter used to be like in a cough pill that pilots would take right or uh, it was
1: a just a common it was called romolar and it was a common it still is a common over the counter
0: yeah i know i know in bleeding edge someone wears a purple drank t-shirt so i guess he never uh gave up (laughs) it's just in (laughs) that okay hamilton thanks for coming on uh where can people find you If they want to read your stuff or listen to your podcast, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, you can listen to my podcast at www.patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. And you can also listen to some of my podcasts on YouTube and Spotify. It's called the Hamilton Morris podcast. And you can watch episodes of my TV show on my Vimeo account or people, Put them on YouTube all the time, or I, you could pay for them. Although I'd recommend not paying for them because they—none uh, of the money goes to me. So,
0: with Vice's bankruptcy, you'd think uh, they want to get a few nickels in the coffer there for uh, those episodes. But I don't know if it'll save them at this point.
1: Well, who even? Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: I don't want to be too mean to old Vice. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so I think we're going to leave it there. That was a lot. Again, this section is the longest section in the book, and I feel like in order to make sure this podcast is not 4,000 episodes long, we have to bite off more than we can chew. Uh, if you want to know more about Gravity's Rainbow, you can read the guide, go on Reddit, talk to smart people. You know, I get emails from pinching heads now. Mm, really? I, I never knew. You, you got one? You I got get them? I got emails from people who love pinching. What did they say? They say that they love to talk about it. So for our next episode, we are going to be covering Gravity's Rainbow Part 3, the zone part, uh, chapters 13 to 23. Uh, So thanks for listening. Thanks to Hamilton Morris for coming on. Check out Hamilton's podcast and all his work uh, on chemistry and drugs. And until next time. Avida Zane? Avida Zane. And juice
2: I've done drugs that would blow your mind tonight. real fine tonight. Blow your mind tonight. Out of my mind tonight. Tonight Go out of my mind tonight. Slow Learners is written and produced by Asha Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asher Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Raina Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitiesrainbowguide.com And remember, we love you.
1: Would you like to come along?
2: I'd like to come along. I've got drugs. Where are you going, man? I've got drugs. Can I come wherever you can? I've is got man. drugs. How do you do? I'll be a dope man Out of the mist There's a pimp Out of the mist There's a hooker Out of the mist There's a priest Out of the mist